Hey, I'm Ellen from Jacksonville, Florida. Hey, I'm Cody from Edmonton, Alberta. I'm Eric from Nashville. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. You know, sometimes the experience that pushes a performer towards show business happens early. Imagine, if you will, being six feet tall by third grade. So essentially being like a living maypole. And uh, who, by the way, kids did dance around me in a circle. Multiple occasions. <laughs> multiple occasions. Even, not even on May 1st. Just any, it's, a, it's a good day to dance around a maypole. Um, but it also made me relatively confident, which is weird because I guess I just felt like nothing worse can happen than this. <laughs> <laughs> it's bullseye. This week, Aisha Tyler from the television program I Would Most Like to Marry, Archer. Plus, we explore the beginnings of the jazz singer Bilal. He's worked with Common, Jay-Z, and even Dr. Dre. He'll talk a little bit about visiting Dre's studio. Oh, man, it's dope. You know? <laughs> but I would recommend everybody bring earplugs. And you might think that God is focused right now on choosing a new pope. But the way comedy writer David Javerbaum sees it, He's probably more focused on spring training. Plus, the best cold open of a television episode ever. It's from News Radio, Season 2, Episode 9. That's all this week on Bullseye. Let's go. Every week on the show, we're joined by some of our favorite culture critics to recommend stuff that's worth your time. This week, we're talking about some all-time favorite albums with Mara Eakin and Nathan Rabin of the AV Club. Hey, guys, how's it going? Great. It's going absolutely fantastic. Thanks for asking. Mara, I, I want to start with you. Uh, your pick is Fleetwood Mac's classic record, Tusk. Let's take a little bit of a listen to the title track. I think if folks know only one thing about Fleetwood Mac, it's probably their record, Rumors. Tell me a little bit about how Tusk is different from that sound. Well, Tusk came out after that. Tusk came out in 1979, and it's kind of Lindsey Buckingham's like experimental opus. The hype behind the record at the time was the it cost a million dollars to make, which was the most expensive rock record at the time. It was a relative success in that it sold 4 million copies worldwide, but that wasn't enough for the label that they were on who considered it a failure post-rumors. Lindsey Buckingham was more influenced by sort of the new wave movement that was going on and sort of post-punk stuff, and so that is all reflected on this record. This record is denser, it's more layered, it has a bunch of weird samples, uh, and you even heard it just a little bit in some of the song you just played, Tusk. So, Nathan, your pick is a live album by Warren Zevon called Stand in the Fire. All you guitar players scald it hot And Zeke's going at it, giving it everything he's got Cause anything goes, whatever it takes I might catch a fit, but I won't put on my brakes Stand in the Stand fire So, Nathan, I guess this is my question. Usually, live albums are for super fans and completists. They're not essential documents 
What makes this record special? When Warren Zevon recorded this album in 1980, he was very much at the apex of his dark powers. And all of that is, is captured uh, on this album. But in concert, uh, Warren Zevon completely reimagined. He completely reinvents these songs. He's just making up a lot of it as it goes along. He's a really, really, really funny guy. And a lot of the songs become like these incredibly elaborate in-jokes. Um, and it really has this incredible sense of intimacy. But it also has this uh, almost kind of feral intensity about it. He's just kind of raging and raw and ragged. And you kind of get the sense that this is what every rock and roll album should be. And this is especially what every uh, live album should be. Nathan Rabin, the head writer of the AV Club, recommends Warren Zevon's Stand in the Fire. His colleague Mara Eakin, the music editor, recommends Fleetwood Mac's Tusk. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Aisha Tyler, is uh, maybe the world's uh, prettiest funny black geek lady or the geekiest (laughs) black funny pretty lady or um, some kind of combination of those words that I haven't said yet uh, because I'm not just going to go through all of the possible combinations of those words because it would be a waste of all of our time. 6,758 Yeah, she was the host of Talk Soup. She was a regular on uh, Friends and CSI and 24, uh, maybe like the most popular television shows ever. Um, She's one of the panelists on CBS's The Talk. Um, On her podcast, Girl on Guy, she talks about guy stuff with... Uh, Both guys and women. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let it not be said that she doesn't talk about guy stuff with women on that show. Um, She's also one of the stars of uh, one of my absolute favorite television programs on television, Archer, on FX, where she plays uh, Lana, the the most competent of the (laughs) incompetent spies on the show. Um, Here she is in a scene from Archer. She is arguing with the titular Archer, played by John Benjamin, uh, he is, well, he's often surprisingly competent. Uh, <laughs> he's a sort of idiot savant spy. Um, in this scene, they're trying to break into a palace on one of their missions, and Archer is manning the computer keyboard as they try to pull up the palace's schematics. So let's assume we can't access the palace through that same skylight. Okay. But maybe we overlooked an air shaft or maybe even some access below grade. Uh, so let's pull up the palace schematics. Um, okay. Maybe today. Hang on. If that works for you. Um, let me see. How about now? Anything? No. Uh, how about now? No. How about now? No. Anything? What are you doing back there? I don't know. What are you, just hitting random keys? Well, obviously. Ah, oh, damn it. Wait. Where is the Hobbit guy? <laughs> a freaking Hobbit works here? No, he's just Lana, a... they're called little people, Will not you Hobbits. Sh- he's a Hobbit enthusiast. Oh. Well, yeah, but he also knows how to work all the computers and satellites and... Archer is now in its fourth season on FX and just got picked up for a fifth. Aisha Tyler and I spoke last year. 
Aisha Tyler, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you for having me. Um, we are both San Francisco natives. I am, uh, I am excited uh, always to have uh, San Franciscan on the show. Yes, we have a strange kind of spidey sense. Yeah. I think it would be fair to say that we have a special spite sense. Yes, and a uh, with a T, sense. yeah, yes. towards towards Southern California. Well, I went home recently and I did a show where uh, I just mocked everybody. Uh, in San Francisco <laughs> because I had drunk up all their fresh water. You were born in San Francisco, mm-hmm. but uh, raised, I think, in large part in the East Bay, right? Yes, back and forth uh, between San Francisco and the East Bay. Um, yeah, like I was born in the city and lived in the East Bay until I was in uh, freshman year in high school, went back to San Francisco and finished high school in San Francisco. Your folks divorced when you were relatively young mm-hmm. and you were raised by your dad, mm-hmm. which is kind of an unusual thing to it have is, your... I mean, yeah. my folks divorced when, they, when I was relatively young and I split time and even that was relatively unusual... Yeah, women always seem to get, I don't know, is that is it the long end or the short end of the lottery? <laughs> <laughs> I think it depends on the kid. It depends on the time of day, too. Yeah. Sometimes you're like, this is a choice. Other times you're like, maybe you'll just disappear for a while. Um, no, I, my parents, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nouveau riche thing to be sending the kids back and forth on weekends. Poor people just go, how much can you afford? Can you afford one? Can you afford two? Just take that one. You take the sofa. I'll take the, I'll take the TV. Goodbye. You know what I mean? There's no, there's no Kramer versus Kramer. When you can't, when you can barely afford groceries, so my parents just each took one because that was what they could manage, and uh, and it worked out great. And my dad took me because I was older and I could cook for him. So. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what did you cook for your dad? I had a very limited repertoire. Um, I could make fried eggs. I could make spinach, frozen spinach out of a bag. My father's specialty was uh, was <laughs> my father men. Our cat, like one pot casserole cookers, you know, and this was kind of before like the real kind of modern TV dinner era. So my father had this specialty that was rice aroni with chopped up chicken and raisins and spinach all stirred into the pot. And I must have eaten rice aroni and like a whole stick of butter. I'm, I ate rice aroni. I mean, it's, it's amazing I didn't have, you know, the gout or rickets or something like that or scurvy. I guess um, one of the central mysteries that I was trying to figure out as I was learning about you um, in, prepar- in preparing for this interview was. Um, connecting the dots between you being uh, good-looking enough to star in and host television programs, <laughs> and um, and being and identifying as a geek. Mm-hmm. Well, um, we have to go back further. And when my parents were still married, um, we lived in the East Bay, and I went to. They scraped and saved my mom. You know, they were they were really lower working class, you know, didn't have a lot of money, but they were both very focused on education. So they scraped and they saved and, and I, they sent me to private school. And uh, I was the only black kid in my school <laughs> for, for almost all of my childhood until I was a teenager. So if you uh, imagine, if you will, um, being six feet tall by third grade, uh, so essentially being like a living maypole, and uh, who, by the way, kids did dance around me in a circle multiple occasions, <laughs> multiple occasions, even not even on May 1st, just any it's a it's a good day to dance around a maypole. Wait, um, are you telling me that these kids weren't even just observing May Day? No, no. We just, know just that kids random, will observe May Day with whatever tall object happens kids, to be kids around. Will collect ribbons and they will build a maypole <laughs> without you don't have to, have to bid them to do it. That's it's sort they feel they they're feel mi- it in the air. They're midi if they're medievalists or they're or they're international socialists. Time to certainly. Make a daisy crowd. Uh, but, you know, just on a random Thursday, let's dance around the big girl. So I was the only black kid in my school. My parents were poor. 
Um, and uh, so, you know, kind of all the social cues that were important when you were a kid, you know, the right clothes, the right shoes, you know, uh, when Nikes came out and everybody had Nikes and I had uh, shoes that my mother had found in a free box. Um, and they, you know, one was a knit booty and one was a flip flop. Um, so there was that. And then when I went home, I lived in a black neighborhood and I talked, you know, in their minds like a white kid and they thought I was fancy and putting on airs. And, uh, and yes, I did get jumped every few months in that neighborhood as well. You know, it did two things. It made me an isolated kid, but it also made me relatively confident, which is weird because I guess I just felt like nothing worse can happen than this. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I just figured like, I'll just put myself out there because it can't get any worse than it's already gotten. You mentioned your surprising confidence. I I want to I want to uh, play a, a clip for you and then and then talk a, a little bit about it. This is um uh, this is actually from your high school years. Oh no! From the steps, I could hear they'd already started. It was Saturday morning, and I overslept, so now I was really late to these auditions. Channel 7 was doing a story on us, School of the Arts, S-O-T-A, you know, soda. We're part of McAteer High, and people are calling us the San Francisco fame. Dance with me, I want to be your partner, can't you see? Music is the style. They were casting a student to be the narrator, someone with humongous talent and personality. Oh, God, that was just physically painful, I have to say. <laughs> physically painful. That is a uh, TV documentary. Uh, I guess they they said Channel Seven, so I'm guessing it must have been from KGO. We got it from uh, we got it from the internet mm-hmm. um, uh, about uh, the high school that you attended, which at the time was at uh, was a sort of sub high school at uh, McAteer High School in San Francisco, and later became a, an independent high school. Yeah. Um, this is the part where I I say I am also a graduate of that high school. Oh, how exciting! You went there. Yeah, I, I went to School of the Arts, and in fact, met my wife there oh that's adorable people would sometimes ask me then and even now like was it like fame like were there people singing and dancing in the hallways kind of i feel yeah, like yeah people were. did yeah, yeah people totally did. when i yeah. was in, yeah people totally i would just say yeah i mean it wasn't choreographed it was more spontaneous than oh, yeah. that no i i feel like there would be like dance offs like in the courtyard and stuff like that you would go and people would just start dancing i mean it wasn't you know it wasn't as ridiculous as it sounds <laughs> <laughs> But yes, there it was. It was very fame-like, and then there were a lot of there. We had some really great graphic artists, and they would do murals and stuff like that, and they would paint people's jackets. And it's it, that does sound ridiculous, yeah. No, but it was. It was very. It was. It was very arty. It's bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Aisha Tyler, a star on one of my favorite television programs, maybe my favorite overall, Archer. She and I spoke last year. The show's now in its fourth season on FX, and it was just announced that it got picked up for a fifth. How do you deal with the aspect of uh, show business that you do have to ask people for permission to do almost all of it? Yeah. And they usually say no. Oh, they love to say no. Are you kidding me? With delight, with glee. That like, you yes. have to go on 25 auditions to get one mm-hmm. part, even when you're being a success. Oh, yeah. Um, well, you know, I think comedy helped a lot because of kind of the innate crushing agony that the early <laughs> years of stand-up comedy are i mean it, you know it, i don't know anyone i'm sure there's a guy out there but i don't know anyone for whom the first three or five years of their comedy career was charmed i mean it's just suffering it's just like 
just prolonged, ongoing, relentless suffering. And, 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 and I, I mean, in so far as I got laughs the first time I got on stage and I was like, kind of like moderately funny from the beginning. I mean, I was never hilarious, but like I, I never, you just, it's just hard. And so that I think kind of toughened me up a little bit for the rest of what this is because a lot of comedy is believing that you're funny in the face of 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 active vocal rejection you know what i mean not even at least with an audition you don't hear that you suck until afterwards if you're on stage people like telling you you personally and i'm looking you in the eye and my pupils are dilating as i tell you that you suck and you can actually smell my breath and you were inhaling the molecules that i just exhaled when i said that word um so I feel like for a lot of people in this business that don't have what comedians have, which is an, a separate outlet to be creative, that's why they're all drug addicts and fall out of cars with no underpants on and fill their lips full of, you know, injectables because they, you know what I mean? Because so much of this business is people telling you that you're not good enough. Um, for me, stand-up was always a saving grace. Like, if I couldn't work as an actor at any particular time in my career, I just, I just went up on stage. You know what I mean? And you can do that anywhere under any conditions, crappy coffee house with the, like the coffee machine blaring and the fluorescence, you know, turning you green. You can still get up and tell your jokes. And it's, um, it's the, it, that's the beauty of comedy. You know, you can do it anywhere. Early in your career, did you play, uh, uh, what they call black rooms? Did you play the, the, the chocolate Thursdays and, the <laughs> um, uh, my comedy is not particularly niche in that way. That's why I ask. Yeah. <laughs> my, I'll tell you, my my, my friend, uh, uh, my friend Al Madrigal is his. He's he's of mixed race. His dad is Mexican American, and but he he reads visually as Latino, mm-hmm. and um, he he sometimes does Latino themed shows mm-hmm. with Latino audiences. Mm-hmm. Where the expectation is that he's going to do Latino material. And most of Al's Latino material is about how uh, confused he is about his Latino identity, <laughs> which is not what they want. They want stuff. Maybe maybe they want stuff about how, you know, Salvadorians hate Mexicans or something, you know. <laughs> oh, that was inside. I didn't yeah. even know that was true. Yeah. Well, something. So, something like something <laughs> along those lines. And like um, and basically any like culturally homogeneous group has certain really clear expectations about clear what expectations, they want from performers. Incredibly dogmatic and almost unyielding rules. Right. Yeah. And you and uh, you ran into those cultural expectations as a kid when you were the private school kid. Oh, uh, absolutely. <laughs> and you know about what comedy comedy audiences can expect from a performer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know and how ruthless they can be oh yeah oh yeah no um you know early very early in my career when i was dying to get on stage anywhere i could i would play some traditionally uh quote unquote black rooms and i would have to do a lot of diffusing right at the top of the show i'd have to like explain myself why i talk like you know i had a material i was like why i talk like this you know and i'm not i'm not trying to you know look down on anybody and i'm not trying to be something i'm not and i would have to really explain a lot of that to people um and it's so funny i on my show, uh, Bill Burr came on and we were talking about the fact that he worked a lot of black rooms when he was coming up, you know, and, and I told him, you know, white comics get a pass in those rooms because Bill's a very ferocious comedian. He actually talked about this a little bit on Mm -hmm. our show. Bill's a very ferocious comedian and sort of attributes part of his ferocity to the fact that 
he had to be a little bit ferocious oh, to be the just, white guy in those he rooms. He just had to drill it down people's yeah. throats. But what I told him was, you have an, you would have an easier time of it than me because you're white. They don't have any expectations of you other than they don't think you're going to be funny. Right. With me, <laughs> you know, with me, they're like, if, if she doesn't come out and hit, you know, A, B, and C touch points, like she's no good. And uh, you know, if you looked at shows like Def Comedy Jam and, and its heyday, there were so many really funny, talented black comics that never would have gotten on that show. Because they just weren't doing the type of comedy that fit that mold. And I never did. And, you know, look, comedy is about being great comics are. And, and I think, you know, a lot of guys who are working right now would say this. And I think Louis C.K. is a perfect example of this. And so is Bill. The only way to be truly funny is to be fully and 100 percent uncompromisingly yourself at all times on stage. People see and smell inauthenticity more now than ever. They smell an act. You know what I mean? Comedy is very different than it was even 10 years ago where a guy could get up and do a character and kind of be in some mode. You know what I mean? And even guys who used to do that then don't do it now. So freeing myself of this idea that I had to fit a certain mold was when I was able to be my funniest. So, you know, I gave up on that very early on. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. If I told you John Hodgman, Kristen Shaw, Mark Marin, and Eugene Merman were on a cruise ship together, enjoying a concert by John Darnielle of the Mountain Goats, what would you think? Maybe that HBO was rebooting The Love Boat? The truth is even better. The Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival is 10 amazing comedians and four great music acts sailing the Caribbean. And the best part is, you're invited. I put it all together, and you won't believe who we've got on board. Check out the full lineup and more information at our website, boatparty.biz. Yes, really, boatparty.biz. The Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival. Comedy. Music. Shuffleboard. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Aisha Tyler, a star on one of my favorite television programs. Maybe my favorite overall, Archer. She and I spoke last year. The show's now in its fourth season on FX, and it was just announced that it got picked up for a fifth. Here's a clip from a recent episode. The super spy, Archer, has a case of amnesia. His colleague, Lana, voiced by Tyler, is trying to ease Archer back into his old life at the spy agency, which is called ISIS. She pretends to bump into him at a spa. So why are you on the run? (sighs) Bob, have you ever heard of ISIS? From the Shazam ISIS Hour TV show? No, the... Remember Shazam? Wait, who was the actor that played Billy Batson? Remember, he'd go, Shazam! Archibald! What? ISIS is the International Secret Intelligence Service, and I'm one of... Well, well, frankly, I'm their best agent. And KGB agents are trying to kill me. Me too. Wait, I I wonder if it's related to your thing. Wait, why are you at the same spa as me? I, uh, uh... Seriously, how are we both at the... I think I see a KGB agent. Kiss me! Mmm. 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 Okay, he's gone. I'm glad... Wow, I'm glad I could help. What I love about your character on Archer is that um, you get to be the straight man for this horrible, horrible uh, person. <laughs> but your 
your straight man character is also very insane. Yes. Oh, she's incredibly flawed. But I, I, you know, and I love her so much. I mean, she does have to lay pipe occasionally. You know, Lana's always the one that's like, <laughs> we've got to save the train from the runaway evil group of people, you know. Um, but she... She is that what lay pipe means? Yes. Oh, yeah. In 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 the business. Yes. Well, it has okay. other meanings. I'm sure. You, okay. I'm sure you could disambiguate on okay. wiki, but um, but in my particular case, in the Hollywood sense, lay pipe means to uh to just drive narrative. You okay. Know, and was like, you know, remember when we met each other back in in '76 right. in San Francisco at the bar with it. That's that's lay pipe. Wait, but so, in 1976 in San Francisco at the bar, lay pipe means something different. Yes. Yeah, so it still means it still means that different thing in San yeah. Francisco at a bar right. now. <laughs> um, but. Uh, but what I have always loved about Lana is that she is someone who is kind of not high strung, but she's very, you know, her type A tendencies get the best of her at all times. I mean, she, she's striving for excellence. She's surrounded by idiots, but you know, she's, she drinks just as much as everybody else. You know, she, she brawls, she sleeps with the wrong people. She's desperate for, you know, she's kind of ultimately casting men away and then desperate for affection. You know, there's a scene in, there's a scene in uh, season two where, you know, she gets drunk at a party at, at Sterling's house and then starts crying about why, like they never had a baby together. I mean, you know, she's, she's got all her own kind of set of problems. Um, She's insanely fun to play. I mean, I can't, I can't think of a character I've loved more than her. Everyone in the show is constantly remarking upon how huge her hands are. She has large hands. And then people write me. I'm like, my hands are delicate and elegant. Thank you very much. They're well kept. My nails are clean. Um, Someone yes. said those cricket paddles. <laughs> cricket paddles. I prefer high lie hook. High lie hook. And, you know, she's kind of... Over, uh, crazily overly sexualized you know there was like a scene in season one where she was supposed to go infiltrate this boat with this arms dealer and she just ends up like staying she needs a break she just ends up staying on the boat with this guy and like drinking with him and then having like <laughs> this terrible three-way with sterling so she's she's got some pretty like fluid um uh boundaries it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne my guest is aisha tyler she hosts the podcast girl on guy she's also the voice of lana on archer It's an animated spy show on FX. Here's a clip from the show's fourth season. Archer is Lana's former flame, and he's trying to win her back. Wait, please, Lana, come on. You can't deny we're attracted to each other. So? So what if all that stuff really has matured me? I mean, I know I'm not perfect, but you have to admit I'm better. Than? Than I was. And also than Cyril could ever be. First of all, Cyril... Cheated on you as much as I did, Lana, and I'm ten times handsomer than him, so... They're the same. Lana, be honest with yourself. It was actually about ten times worse. What happened to your idiot voicemail? I'm doing this new thing where now it just rings. Drives people crazy. Oh my God, you have matured. Lana, I have. Just let me prove it. Aisha Tyler and I spoke last year. One of the things about voiceover, and I've only done it a few times, but one of the weird things is that you think that when you're acting, there's like one true feeling that you're supposed to express Mm -hmm. and that your goal is to to express that true feeling. Mm -hmm. But when you're doing voice work, like part of what you're doing is just finding, is just expressing every feeling that it could be so that they can pick from amongst them and chop them up into little tiny pieces and put them back together. And it's, it's a weird thing to like have a feeling about a line and then have to turn around on a dime and be like, but what if it was completely different? Right. But it, on the other hand, yes, 
acting with other actors is is much more nuanced because not only are you having whatever set of thoughts and feelings your character's having in the scene, but you're reacting to other people's thoughts and feelings and, and their physical stance and what's happening in the room and what you're touching, what you're picking up, whatever you're doing, how your pants feel, you know what I mean? How wardrobe got them wrong. Um, so, so yes. And with voiceover, it is a lot more like, a, for me, it's much more like a math problem. It's just like, I'm going to just bang on this until the perfect thing pops out the other side. And it's not so, it's not so, it's not so, uh, you know, exsanguinated that like, I'm just like, just say it five ways. It's just like, maybe Lana feels this way about it. Maybe she feels that way about it. Maybe. And I just keep kind of going at it. Yeah. But I think it's the more you do that, the more that kind of trigger becomes easier to pull. You go into the studio, you do just your lines, you do them a thousand different times, whatever. And you'd go through this whole weird sausage barfing process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then at the end of it, you get to watch this thing that came out of that. Well, it's interesting. The, one of the number one questions I get from fans about of the sh- about the show, like when I do stand up, I get a lot of our fans and you know they come up afterwards and go like, you know, so do you guys all record together? That's the number one question. Do you guys all record together? Because that's how beautifully they assemble all those moving parts into one thing. That you know when we, you know, it's it's an ensemble show, and you know it's we're all together as characters much of the time in that show. I mean, it's essentially an office comedy with spies and um, the fact that they're able to take these, you know, all these moving parts and, and kind of mush them together into this kind of really beautiful kind of, you know, fluid um, orchestration is it is a testament to how good they are at their jobs. Um, uh, I don't think they're doing any Disney level crap with the chopping up of the word parts. I think that any money that might be going to that is going to craft services and candy bar snacking at, uh, at the offices over at at, uh, Floyd County. But um, <laughs> I mean, you know, we, I don't know. I visited there one time. I don't remember any candy bars. Oh, you, Maybe a, they hid them. There's a stash. Do you think they hid the candy bars oh, from they, me? From you? Yes. They said thorns coming over. Strangers, hide the candy bars. Strangers don't get candy bars. That's just for the. That's just for the initiata. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that the fact that people are convinced that all of those actors are always together in a room doing that show is a testament to how well it's assembled uh, at the back end and how elegant every aspect of that animation process is because it's a beautiful looking show. It's done very differently than something like Toy Story. You know, those backgrounds are three D watercolor paintings. Um, so av- so as so to avoid the uh, Scooby Doo kind of repeating background on a you know on a treadmill kind of a thing. Um, and it's a testament to the vision of, of the guys that created the show, you know, Matt Thompson and Adam Reed, just, you know, incredible talents and, and had a vision for it. And uh, I'm sure Adam, if he heard me saying this, would be on his back laughing hysterically. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, you know, they truly created something unique and there's nothing like it on television, which I, I say that everybody says that, says that, but I, I say that without, without qualification. There's nothing like Archer on television. Aisha Tyler, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was a joy. Aisha Tyler can be heard on Archer, which airs Thursday nights on FX. You can also hear her on her podcast, Girl on Guy. And it was just announced that Aisha will be hosting new episodes of Whose Line Is It Anyway? on The CW this summer. Hey guys, want to hear longer versions of the conversations on this week's episode? Go to MaximumFun.org to find them. And share them with your friends.
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. You might think that God is focused right now on picking a new pope, but he's probably paying more attention to spring training. Pitchers and catchers just reported, friends. Here's a piece from comedy writer David Javerbaum. It's part of The Last Testament, a memoir by God. Let me turn it over to the big guy upstairs. What you may not know about me is that every so often I like to call into sports radio shows. I tell the screener I am Mike from Massapequa or Sam from Santa Clara, and he talks to me a minute to make sure that I am worthy enough not only to discuss the foibles of the area's athletic teams, but to freight that conversation with enough entertainment value to warrant its being broadcast to 35,000 other people in the greater, say, St. Louis area. I am put on hold, then I hear, you're on the air. And then I launch into a passionate monologue about the value of switch-hitting outfielders and dogfighting, the eternal beauty of the pick-and-roll and steroids, the day the Red Sox won the World Series, and the day O.J. Simpson murdered two people. In other words, all things sports. For a few pleasant minutes, the host and I complain and commiserate and argue with each other. Then I am thanked for calling, and the hosts move on never realizing that the unseen voice with which they just talked pucks was not in fact Mike from Massapequa, but God from the great beyond. But I do not mind, for I do not call in to be recognized. I call because I love talking sports. Sport is mythic. Sport is epic. Sport is a condensation of all human activity. It is often said that sport is a metaphor for life. It would be more accurate to say, life is a metaphor for sport. U.S. Chief Justice Earl Warren once wrote, I always turn to the sports section first. The sports section records people's accomplishment. The front page reveals nothing but man's failures. A few moments' reflection reveals how utterly wrong these words are. Yet they are in keeping with the kind of mindless distraction that sports provide. They are also the greatest substitute for armed conflict ever devised. They are like unto diet war, a zero-casualty alternative to regular war, with all the great fighting and suffering and action thou demandest in a conflict, but almost none of the adverse health effects. Especially do I love the Olympics, the pageantry of all the nations of the world joining together in peaceful competition as a million armed security personnel hover just off-camera, Myth-making at its finest. But it is not just the Olympics. I love all sports. Athletic competition of every type and size and description enthralls and delights me. Except tennis, which is Dullesville. In sports, I see the finest specimens of my finest creation operating at the highest level of their physical abilities. And as a sports fan, I understand how much the games mean to both other fans and the athletes. The passion they stir, the tempests they royal, the loyalties they build, and above all the rivalry, violence, and rioting they so justifiably evoke. And that is why I have never, ever influenced the outcome of a sporting event to determine the winner. I have only, on extremely rare occasions, influenced the outcome of a sporting event to affect the spread. Seth Morris voiced God in that segment. It was written by David Javerbaum. You can find the text in The Last Testament, a memoir by God. You can find Seth Morris on Twitter at 
Seth is Morris. After a break, the jazz singer Bilal talks about what it's like in Dr. Dre's studio. Oh man, it's dope. You know? <laughs> but I would recommend everybody bring earplugs. <laughs> she loves to play the music mad loud. Plus, the best cold open ever. News Radio Season 2, Episode 9. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. Hi, everybody. This is Justin McElroy, and in the rich fiction we just created, the hosts of this podcast have gone for a little pee break. Hi, I'm Travis McElroy. Quick, while they're not looking, slip our comedy in. I'm Griffin McElroy, the baby brother, and stop, I'm the police. What are we doing? This is my brother, my brother, and me, where we take questions and turn them into wisdom and make fun of you. We make fun with you? We make fun with you because English is our second language. Well, now it's getting racist. (laughs) We have... We literally had 25 seconds, and we did racist with it. So wait till you see what we can do with a whole hour on my brother, my brother, and me. We're brothers. We're experts. And we're sorry. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the soul and jazz singer Bilal. His first album came out over 10 years ago, but his fame has yet to reach the heights of his talent. When artists like Jay-Z, Dr. Dre, or the Grammy-winning pianist Robert Glasper are looking for that perfect classic soul voice, something with the lightness and and agility of jazz, but also that torn emotional quality of soul they call Bilal. Bilal just released a new record called A Love Surreal. Here's a bit of the song, West Side Girl. Hey, how you doing? I've been watching you getting down From the west side part of town Girl You ain't gotta talk a lick Body talk a lot Ish Got one question Could you roll with a cat like me I could take you where you wanna go We go where the wind blows Got one question Could you roll with a cat like me in 2010. We discussed the whole breadth of his career. It was around the time he put out his last album, Airtight's Revenge. You went to arts high school, right? Was that, was that the Philadelphia School of Performing Arts? Mm-hmm. Um, that's where uh, the Roots went. Mm-hmm. Uh, Boys to Men also went there. Mm-hmm. Um, were you sort of aware of that tradition when, when you were there? Was there like big pictures of Boys to Men on every wall? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but they actually used to uh, come and visit the school often. And so did, you know, a lot of the alumni. I never saw Amir or, uh, you know, Tariq come, but... Of of the roots. Yeah, but uh, 
I, I saw a lot of um, a lot of boys men, and and Christian McBride, the jazz musician, he used to come and uh, you know give talks and, and uh, jam with the students a lot. So, were you singing, playing piano? What, what were you up to there? Well, I was singing. I was a vocal major at the time, but I I I was also playing a little bit and um, singing in the jazz band. I was playing piano and singing in the jazz band back then. Were you really twice voted uh, uh, most weird in your high school yearbook? Yeah, and I don't understand why. <laughs> you went to an arts high school, too. I went to an arts high school. I know it would really take a lot to have been voted most weird in dude, my high school. Uh, dude, there were people in my high school that wore black every day and black makeup, and I was the weirdest one. <laughs> I I mean, it wasn't, it was no, like, official, like, my picture in, in the yearbook, like, weird, but, <laughs> uh, you know, every every uh, year they would have a little uh, voting of, you know, most talented, you know, best singer, best musician. I got, I, I got most likely to win a Grammy in the yearbook, and I got school weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> I want to play a song that appeared on your uh, first record. It's a really uh, wild song. Um, it's called Second Child. Let's hear a little bit of it. I'm a second class citizen, spawned from kings, who can spot that nation, trying to find my 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 Tell me a little bit about how and, and why you you wrote and recorded that record. It was really like jazz, but when I was writing back then, uh, my whole angle was like to fuse infuse jazz into uh, what I was doing, you know. And, and the form for me to get in was was uh, was R and B. Like I never really. I didn't, that wasn't really my uh, ultimate goal. Like I moved to New York to um, to really be a jazz singer, so I was just finding all way, all different kinds of ways to you know sneak in that jazz sound, you know, and, and also like just free free instrumentation. I don't know how to describe it, but, you know, I threw the kitchen sink in there. I, I feel like it's, it would be fair to say that you are basically flipping the heck out. Can't swear on the radio. <laughs> but you really go wild. And it reminded me, you know, I, I saw you perform uh, back in those days when the first record was out. You performed on Leno mm -hmm. on The Tonight Show. And um, uh, you really turned it up to 11 to the point where you were like running around the stage just way outside of the range of the cameras. <laughs> they were like trying to follow you down. You were in, running into the house just all over everywhere. Um, when you get an opportunity like uh, performing on The Tonight Show for an audience of several million people, it must have been a choice to say, well, I'm just going to really go wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, uh I, I just, you know, when I start playing, I just go free. You know, I really don't think about, like, inhibitions anymore. I just, you know, 
one, I'm, I feel like I'm on TV. It's time to make a statement, you know. Um, Even if that statement is a statement that might not get you invited back to hell, TV. Sh- shucks. I'm, I'm uh, you know, I'm there. This is me, you know. I, I, especially back then, I really didn't think about, like, what, <laughs> what the repercussions would be of me going wild. I just do it, you know. At the time, um, you were on Interscope Records, and, and you recorded a couple of tracks with Dr. Dre. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've 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 recorded with uh, Dr. Dre and his sort of extended camp a few times since then. Um, he's sort of legendary for his perfectionism and his really specific aesthetic sense when it comes to sound. What, what's it like to actually be in the studio with him? Oh man, it's dope. You know, but I would recommend everybody bring earplugs. <laughs> he loves to play the music mad loud. I remember when I first walked into his studio, I saw he, all his interns and, and, the, and uh, his engineers. They had on uh, earplugs. <laughs> That's not something you see in the studio that often. I know, and I didn't know what was going on until Dre walked in, and then you know, in his studio, usually studios just have like three speakers. You know, the two big ones at the top, and then the woofer. You know, underneath the board, he had three woofers underneath the board, <laughs> three big speakers at the top, and two tweeters above the the uh, top speakers. And he came in and was like, hell yeah, I want to play you a song you know, I'm working on that I think this would be great for you. And he turned it to 11, like bam, all the way up. And I'm just, it was the loudest sound thing music I've ever heard in my life. It was so loud, I felt it in like my toes. <laughs> and then I look around and I see everybody's earplugs. I'm like, oh, yeah. But Dre's just sitting there like it's just regular. Let's hear a little bit of uh, Fast Lane, which was uh, the single that you released that was produced by Dr. Dre. I am Jesse Thorne. You're hearing my 2010 interview with Bilal. Just this year, the jazz singer put out a new album called A Love Surreal. Here's the song Butterfly. The ballad features one of Bilal's frequent collaborators, Grammy Award-winning jazz pianist Robert Glasper.
the uh, the jazz singer Jose James was on the show, and something that I talked about him with was the intersection between uh, jazz and hip hop. And while they share a lot of similar roots and have a lot in common, there's a lot that's very different about them. So how do you see how do you see the two of those two things um, interacting in your work? What what are the things that move you most that make you identify as a as a jazz singer? And and what are the things that are most compelling to you about um, hip hop and and uh, contemporary soul music? Well. The thing about hip hop and um, and uh, jazz that I think are similar is the fact that you can um, you can put anything over the over the uh, the backbeat, you know, and pretty much call it jazz or you know hip hop. You know, prime example what Tribe Called Quest did. Really, what I do with my thing is I try to mix it all together in a way where the backbeat. We, 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 we use the backbeat to bring it up to date, but um, I try to keep everything open so that it leaves us room when we perform to improvise if we want, you know. That's how I try to, like, fit in the both the two. Your music is also, I think, different on stage than it is in the studio. You're, you're still uh, sort of wildly interpretive, Mm-hmm. on stage is is that is is that a sort of a self-conscious choice i write all the tunes so they can go to a, another place when we do them live you know that's important i really consider myself a, a live a live act really and i, I try to make my music in a, in a way that every night uh it sounds different you know just like a jazz song you know or a jazz crew if you were to go see miles you know every night it would, uh, it would be different, you know. So, Miles is one of my biggest influences. So, you know, I kind of try to do it that way. It seems like um, one of the things that might be interesting to you about Miles Davis is his his sort of willingness to be outrageous mm-hmm. and provocative. Definitely, his 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 willingness to think outside of the box and change. You know, he he never really stayed or stuck to one sound or one way of doing things. You know, he was always pushing himself and stretching uh, the landscape. Tired of all these wars, dwelling in the past, searching for the honesty in all that jazz. What are we here for? What are we doing? Last time I checked, thought it was screwing, girl. And when I think... Of me and you and all the things that we've been through And going through and stepping back To do the shit you're hoping for a brighter day Girl Look up in the sky and yeah, somehow, somehow we got stuck How do we get back, back down to love? Oh, how do we get back to love? Back to love Back to love Paul's new album is called A Love Surreal. On our way out, let's hear the song Back to Love. Back to love. Go have 
happiness is what I'm for. Cause Amsterdam, down to Spain, into Morocco, Marrakesh, take off the flesh, keep it fresh, decompress, we've come so far. Wanna get back to love, how do we get back to love, how do we get back to love? Back to love Like the fruit that falls from the trees Stronger than the rose that grows from the concrete We can bask in the light of the sun Feel the love revolving around us Every week we close the show with a culture suggestion from yours truly. It's the outshot. So there's this thing at the beginning of a sitcom called a cold open. It's the scene that grabs you before the credits even start. The best cold opens set up the episode. Uh, but they're also like a little sketch in and of themselves. That's because the credits of a sitcom are what introduces the context of the show and the characters of the show. So the cold open has to work with the plot of the episode, but it also has to work without any context at all. It has to basically be a self-contained nugget of comedy perfection, which is... Exactly how I would describe the opening scene of News Radio Season 2, Episode 9. It's called The Cane. Hey, Bill. Something wrong with your leg? Not that I'm aware of, but thanks for asking. Oh. Well, if there's nothing wrong with your leg, then uh, why the cane? The what? The cane. The walking stick. Oh, you mean my cane? <laughs> News Radio's cast was full of amazing comedy actors. But in this scene are two of the best. Dave Foley, who plays the boss, Dave, might be the best straight man since Bob Newhart. Again, Bill, why do you have a cane? Alongside him is Phil Hartman, a man who could bluster like no one before or since. It's just like that old saying, everybody loves a cane. No, Bill, I think the old saying is, everybody loves a clown, which is what you look like with that thing. The payoff here comes uh, when the bloviating Hartman does this cane dance that is almost Fred Astaire-like in its grace and just spectacular in its banality. But, Bill, you're not using the cane for anything. The cane should have a function. And, excuse me, can I help you? Yeah, I'm looking for uh, Chapman Graphic Arts. Are they on this floor? Uh, oh, the Graphic Arts place. Yeah, they're... Allow uh... me. <laughs> you, my good man, are going to get back on the elevator. Go down one floor. Step off the elevator, turn left. Walk down the hallway, and the Graphic Arts shop is one, two, three, four, five doors down. On the right, just open the door... 
and your home. Thank you. Just glad I could be of service. And then he uses the cane to throw his breakfast at Dave Foley. Bagel Dave. (laughs) Seriously, I could watch that scene every day for the rest of my life. Go on the internet, type in news radio, the cane, and live a better life. That's my outshot for this week. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Thomas Madison. Our interstitial music is provided to us by Dan Wally. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. You can also visit us on Twitter, at Bullseye, on Facebook and SoundCloud, where you can share segments with your friends. I guess that's about it. And remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Production of Bullseye is supported in part by Put This On, a menswear blog and pocket square manufactory based in Los Angeles. Put This On is about dressing like a grown-up. Online at putthison.com. PRI Public Radio International.